It's December 2008. 350 people leafed through a stack of bills, advertisements, and Christmas cards to find something quite curious. Their name and address, just the letters, as if the name and destination had lifted off the page. Take my name, for instance. Damien, imagine D-A-M-I-A-N in script, so each letter is linked, and then cut out a folded cardstock. Open one corner, and the paper blooms into a snowflake. Intricately cut out Damien Bradfields, fanning out in every direction. So this was really hard work to do. Designing one of these was as hard as designing a building. That's the architect Thomas Heatherwick whose architecture studio started sending out imaginative Christmas cards to collaborators and clients all the way back in 1994. And this is from an interview he did with Dezine magazine. When it came to setting up a studio, it was a way that I knew to thank people or give love to people who had really helped you. And you didn't have any money to do the, the obvious give someone a bottle of whiskey or something like that. What you did have is the ability to give an idea. In 2012, these Christmas cards became part of the exposition of Thomas's work at the V&A Museum in London. Children make things, and so it sort of got a bit out of hand and ended up going into adult life. It's this kind of movement, surprise and creativity that you see all throughout Thomas's work. Whether it's a floating park that seems to grow out of the Hudson or a brilliant London bus redesign that honours the so-called Routemaster's history, Thomas's work is singularly imaginative. But more important than that, they're places built for humans. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence. Who has it? Who wants it? And how we can use it for good. Thomas Heatherwick set up his studio in 1994 because he had a sense that to do the kind of work he wanted to do, he would have to be able to make it himself. Nearly 30 years later, Heatherwick Studios has completed truly imaginative projects all over the world, from the London Olympic Velodrome to a green park in the Abu Dhabi desert that appears to spring from the cracking earth to a brand new Google campus in Mountain View that's designed to adapt to a rapidly moving future. Thomas is not only working to make better buildings, he's applying his artistic thinking to make better cities. And this brand of Thomas Heatherwick's creativity and innovation, his willingness to think outside of existing models, it's inspiring, but it also gives me a lot of hope for the future. Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for asking me to come on. So let's start at the beginning of your career. A lot of your work is otherworldly, and you make these structures that sway like sea creatures or, or bridges that unfurl, or skyscrapers that explode with greenery. What brought you into this kind of work? I suppose I started my studio because I was surprised at how inhuman the buildings around me as I, as I was growing up seemed to be, seemed to be something strange had happened in the last 50 years or so. And I couldn't figure out what, what it was, why everywhere new was boring and didn't engage you. And there were historic structures that 
engaged your interest and pulled you in, but it didn't seem like copying history was quite the way forward because the reasons buildings were like they were historically or places was often because of availability of one particular material at one time or a particular craftsmanship. But it seemed that maybe very consciously, but also slightly inadvertently because of the crafts and processes and materials of their time, they had human qualities. And it seemed the triumph of industrialization, of being able to make even bigger flat panels, even bigger pieces of glass, even flatter, even smoother, was very impressive technically, but emotionally unimpressive. <laughs> you know, somehow emotionally homogenizing once you started treating that as a new normal. So emotion was exchanged for efficiency. I've been interested in emotion of users, of how we think of function and the way that we define function, I think, too narrowly as thinking, well, if you're designing a building, that you work out mechanically how much space you need and there's all these rules of thumb for efficiency and regulations. And that if you meet all those functions, a mindset, almost like a giant brainwash had been put over us all to think that form followed function and that therefore, if you worked all of that stuff out, it must, must somehow inevitably be, be beautiful. And actually, I feel we forgot that emotion is a function. Right. Even if you use minimum energy, even if people can escape from fires and have half-decent light, if people actually aren't emotionally invested in the places around themselves, then you're wasting a huge amount of money, time, and planetary resource. Speaking of resources, can you talk a little bit about environmental impact and architecture? Because I, I don't necessarily think that a lot of emphasis has been placed on buildings in comparison with, say, transportation. Yeah. We think about the climate crisis that's unfolding around ourselves, and there's been immense emphasis placed on the impact of cars and aviation. But if we, say, take aviation... Aviation is just over 2% of greenhouse gas emissions, but buildings are 38%. There's 15 times the impact of aviation. And you know, aviation has somehow stolen the limelight of things we should worry about rather than thinking, if people don't love places, they're more likely to demolish them. I want to talk about the 2010 World Expo in Shanghai and your, your work that was on display there. Yeah. How do you approach creating a structure like the UK Pavilion, which, for those who don't know, looks like a gigantic dandelion with 60,000 silver hairs coming out of its surface? That World Expo, I'm so happy that you remember that one. I mean, <laughs> at the World Expo in Shanghai, it was going to be the world's biggest ever expo, a million people coming every day, 250 pavilions, and each country showing off <laughs> so much which, so in, in a sense, it makes me want to run in the opposite direction completely. You're just imagining being there in the middle of the summer, walking around with ludicrous heat, crazy queues, and 
typically at expos, you'll have a two or three hour wait when it's really popular expo for the main pavilions and just thought, oh, how do you stand out when everyone's trying to stand out? You have to predict what other people will do. So we tried to sort of imagine what everyone else was going to do and then think, then you mustn't do that because the British government had given us half the budget of the other Western nations and had said, you've got to be in the top five out of 250 pavilions. (laughs) You know, there's never enough money in any project you ever do. So it's always about trying to think how you use the resources that you do have to really achieve their their aim. Weirdly, we realised if we did something ordinary or predictable, people would be less likely to go, and therefore we would waste the British taxpayers' money. So actually we needed to define what ordinary was and not do that. How do you break out of those conventions? So it was certainly a time when people were making shaped buildings, extraordinary shapes, and we knew that we, we all had a site the size of a football pitch. If you spent all your money on trying to make a shape as big as a football pitch, 100 metres by 60 metres, there would be no contents. <laughs> and that's typically what happens at the expo. The architect spends all the money on the building and then they have to do projections on the inside because they can't do anything else. Okay. So we just thought, well, why does a building have to be as big as its site? What if we only did a sixth of the site as memorable, and then five-sixths of the site, just support that and make a space. And then thinking about what condition people would be in when they've already seen 10, 20, 30 pavilions, they'll be exhausted, your brain, your eyes. It's a bit like when you didn't do your Christmas shopping and you're trying to do it all <laughs> on one day and go on... I mean, this is a London perspective. If you try to go down the whole of Oxford Street, all of Regent Street, imagine how you feel. So it felt what people need is refreshment from the chaos of every country trying to tell you too much about themselves. And so we just thought, what if we maybe didn't show that cheesy stories about Britain, how it rains all the time in Britain and castles and queens or... David Beckham's great, but what if we say something fresh? (laughs) And we were interested in light and movement. British cities are the greenest of their size in the world. And I remember seeing years ago a film called Witness. This is really dating me, you know, back in the 1980s with Harrison Ford about living on an Amish community. One of the opening sequences, I think, was of these fields and the fields of the grass all moving and pulsing, and it was magical. And we're just thinking texturally, what if a building wasn't a hard thing always? Like, what shape is my building? But instead said, what if a building's texture could pulsate and move in the way that grass does, blurring the hard inner bit with the sky? And so... That's how we had these seven and a half meter optic hairs that pierce through a very simple, boring box. But each one of them, it moves in the wind and tingles in a way. The building would tingle and you would get these pulses slightly like those film sequences of grass. Can you paint a picture for listeners of what's going on inside the pavilion? Yes. So when you're on the inside of the UK pavilion, you were seeing the daylight coming through these optic fibres 
And each one had a different seed species trapped in the end of it, illuminated by the daylight. We were very lucky. It won the top prize at the expo and we had had half the budget. And it was a re-reminder to me that what's interesting and what we sometimes forget is what matters most is your strategy, how you think about people's feelings. And I think for a long time, architecture and the world of buildings has believed the public are wrong. You're dumbing down if you make something that connects with the public in any way. And that almost like the public saying they don't like something is validation you're probably doing something right, which is totally bizarre. In a way, the public have been left cold often by the world of of buildings and feel like these things are done to them. Buildings are for us all. And ultimately, it's not building designers who decide when a building is demolished. It's the public. I want to stay on the thought of emotion because one of the other projects I've heard you talk about that struck me as a great brief to work on is Maggie's. And for those who don't know, Maggie's is a UK-based charity that provides free, practical and emotional support for people with cancer. Mm, mm. You talked about a space that was needed within the brief where people could go and cry and be sad. Could you talk a little bit about what was created there? Yeah. This was just a very small building, but it was equally challenging as the largest scale of project in that it was in the north of England, in Yorkshire, at the biggest cancer hospital in the UK. In a sense, its job was to be the antidote to the hospital itself, where you have large hospital structure and the hospital is is like a big workshop treating and diagnosing. Yeah. If I think back to the worst places, environments we encounter in our lives, medical environments are often there. You know, educational spaces, governmental spaces. It seems to be one of the challenges of our time. And, And then you have this illness that is so common, which so many of us will have cancer as part of our life experience. Just that word strikes into us so deep and it has seemed like some a death sentence automatically and yet the treatments are advancing rapidly and it really isn't a definite ending of your life but it's just part of the things that we all need to deal with through our lives and so it was interesting to think of this as an opportunity to try to make an architecture of hope this is an, was a non-clinical building and somewhere where when somebody is diagnosed, that is typically in a hospital. But what do you do? You're given your diagnosis in a sterile environment and pushed out the door back to the world. But where do you come to terms with that? What's going to support you in the treatments and that maybe many and lasting many months and possibly years where it's going to disrupt your life in a large way and you're on your own and yet that you aren't really on your own. There are so many people who are also going on cancer journeys themselves. So in a sense, this is like a very large house where you can come together with other people who are at different stages and be given the possibility to really bolster your inner resources. 
So in that process, how do you how do you decide and work out that's what people need? On a podcast like this, I might sound like I've like here I am. I've, <laughs> I have all the answers. It isn't like that. What I am is a convener of a process, and I've got amazing collaborators and the the commissioners we work with are part of that and teach you. Okay, and so you you go on this development journey together to, to find what the right answer might be and to try out lots of things. And so we we started that. Sometimes you do something that was, it met the budget and was empathic, but it wasn't inspiring. Or you, it met the budget and, and was inspiring, but wasn't empathic. Or was empathic and inspiring that didn't meet the budget. And so you, you, you go round and round. <laughs> so how many, how many renditions of concepts would you might might you have on a project like this uh 20 oh wow this was possibly one of the hardest things we've ever worked on but we had a north star inside ourselves and i think i've been really interested in how so many buildings of the last century have really not been humanizing and the social side and so how could we make a building that where you walk in and just feel you can relax the tense muscles that you have holding yourself. And what does it look like? So the heart of it is a kitchen and, and garden. It, it isn't like a building and like there's the toilets. Even the toilets themselves are a room, a special room. Often a toilet is the only space you can be private in any slightly more public setting. But so instead of treating the toilet as miserable cubicles, we've made them a room with books and objects and plants and somewhere that you could could linger. And then there was this one bit of grass and it wasn't even, it was the construction waste from the car park next door, which someone had bunged some turf on. And we just thought, God, this is the last bit of green. Are we the ones to slam a big building on it? We just thought, no, we mustn't. We must be the ones who make this site greener because of this excuse of building this building. So the building is actually three planters, major pieces of garden with trees, shrubs. And then it has 23,000 bulbs, 17,000 plants. I mean, gardening is one of those things also that is a, a stress reliever and... So there are tools around as well. There's tea and tools. Can I just go back to the 20 renditions you made before you arrived at the final project? In order to do that, you've got to have a pretty good relationship with the client. There must be a certain amount of trust to allow you to continue coming back. And potentially it's costing more, or it's getting more frustrating as timings are becoming tighter and everything else. Has that process become easier as your career has developed and you've become more well-known, perhaps better understood in the way that you work and what you can develop? Or was it always the case from day one that you needed to have those conditions or, you know, you had you had the luxury of those sort of relationships? Uh, are you saying, am I a bad designer because it took me 20 goes? No. <laughs> to get to right. I'm saying, are you a master <laughs> no, no. of managing no, relationships? <laughs> no, the, um, I work with an amazing group of people so we have shorthands with each other of how to try ideas. We know that you have to keep trying and looking from different angles and perspectives. And it's got easier to 
be more experimental, actually, because we've got different ways we can try things. So whether that's using our workshop and doing prototypes and tests, using the computers, using hand drawing, um, models, I find absolutely crucial. But I mean, when I was little, I, I didn't even know those words, architectural designer. I had heard of inventors. That's what you wanted to be. I thought I thought I wanted to be an inventor because it seemed like ideas were the key to things. And I keep coming back to that importance of ideas. And where things go wrong is often when people start designing rather than finding the right idea. And with our own team, you know, the, you can get to a point where you're trying and you think, hang on, we're just designing now. <laughs> you're just pushing shapes around and it needs to be led by a thought, and then that's useful to come back to. So I find there's no shorthand to get to the right idea. You have to wrestle to get the right idea. And because we're not interested in rolling out one approach, like here it is, I've got the answer, now let's apply it to every building. I think if you do that, we'll end up with a very homogenized world. And so I'm... Just as in nature, we've learned the immense importance of biodiversity. I think in the world of building design, we desperately need architectural diversity. And so I think that's one of my criticisms, really, is that when the world homogenizes and cities and towns just look more and more similar to each other. So in a sense, we have to reinvent in projects to try and find ideas you should come and join our world. Yeah. In the world of technology, the algorithm is key to everything and it's becoming the grey blob, which is a really good segue to Google. Yeah. So can you tell me about the headquarters you're developing in Mountain View, California? I'd love to hear how you've transformed that from the beanbag space, as you defined it, into the new workspace. So I'm collaborating with someone called Bjarke Ingels and we've been working together on the master plan for Mountain View in California, but also building the headquarters here in London. Then my studio has also been working on uh, a few of their new workspaces. Also in San Jose, we've been helping with the master planning where the center of the city was very run down. And Google have partnered with the city on the main city center to try to look at how you can simultaneously make workspace, but also bring broader societal benefit. And so in Mountain View, we are just completing four buildings and three of them are right next to the NASA airbase, the Moffat airfield. And they were an excuse to simultaneously reinstate the natural habitats in the bay. So there's all this um, wetlands all around that that are on the edge of the bay that had been neglected. And so we're planting uh, hundreds of new trees and rewilding with the natural habitats, making rainwater, capturing ponds. And so we looked at whether we could reinstate nature, but then Looking at the the airbase, there were three giant airship hangars. 
spectacular structures which had been you know built in the early part of the 20th century for airships which were thought to be a potential future and then we suddenly had a breakthrough just realizing we should make hangars because we don't know the future and google were very clear that they don't know what in 20 years time they may be making balloons they could be making airships themselves who knows what the future is going to be it's moving so fast so we proposed to make hangar spaces that could sit within rewilded nature and then are extremely flexible the entire building is made it's these are vast tents like bedouin tents are the most efficient way to make large spans and it's all made from a semi-rigid solar panel um, like a dragon scale fabric back to texture but it captures the energy of the, the sun and turns it into power for the building and then within those hangars you can build a kind of village and that could change and so it's sort of like a little town inside with courtyards and everyone has a desk space on top of that village and they're all at differing heights so there's a landscape which can hold teams to create that focus that teams need to be able to have but also having some sense of a bigger collective. I think, you know, in the past, bosses loved open plan, but actually people working in open plan spaces, out of the corner of your eye, you're constantly distracted by seeing people coming and going and seeing the emptiness of different parts. And how can you get that energy that 10 people need to drive themselves, to make the breakthrough? Where do you see... Um, you know, cities going in the future, and what would you like to do? I can only see your projects getting bigger. Um, you know, what what thing was it that you'd like to be involved in, or where do you see architecture going? I suppose I have to put forward a hopeful view. I think what we need to do is radically humanise our towns and cities. That means we need to really think with emotional fascination at how we make places that connect with people. We start with city centres, they're one thing, but you start looking at the periphery as you start going out from city centres. Almost universally, you get the most soulless places where, you know, the pressures of cost, time, politics, egos, status quo, you know, it's massive pressures against humanising. But what we desperately need is that humanising side you know, if a new building is being made, you'll say, well, you have to have a green premium to understand its ecological impact. I think we can start to talk of a human premium. That's where I would love to see the coming together of the, the incredible digital brilliance, the scientists and people who are neurologists understanding value better, that the, what appears good value isn't good value if it doesn't make humanized places. And that's our episode for today. Massive thank you to Thomas Heatherwick. I want a Heatherwick Studios Christmas card, and I'm hoping that this is going to be my ticket onto that list. If you do not already have a WeTransfer Pro account, we'd like to give you one, well, at least a few of you. So check out we.tl slash Thomas. That's we.tl slash Thomas for a free WeTransfer Pro account. Our gift to you as listeners. 
And if we run out, don't worry, there'll be some more next week. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is the ever-amazing Rachel Swaby with editing from Audrey No and Elise Hugh. Sound engineering by the lovely Mark Bush. And our WeTransfer creative producer is Cara O'Shea. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying the show, please tell one person at least. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with 